I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Romans chapters 13 through 16. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Beginning in chapter 13 of Romans, we find some interesting verses on government authority. Verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil." Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In this passage, Paul makes an appeal for believers to be subject to the governing authorities, the word authorities there is translated from the Greek noun exousia. Notice how carefully worded that sentence is. He doesn't say obey every law. He does seem to indicate, however, that Christians should respect the law and comply whenever possible. Of course, Paul was aware of Old Testament examples like Daniel, who found it impossible with a good conscience to comply with every detail of that new law that had been decreed by Darius in Daniel chapter 6. Notice the last part of verse 1. It says, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. When tempting Jesus, Satan makes a noteworthy statement in Luke chapter 4, verse 6. That verse says, And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. According to the implications of Satan's statement there, even Satan's power was given to him by God. It's a bad testimony for believers to flaunt the law, However, when scriptural principles are clearly violated by the law itself, actions like those of Daniel are completely appropriate. Incidentally, the consequences for resisting the ordinances of verse 2 is judgment. The Greek word there is krima. Sometimes condemnation, also known as damnation, may be gleaned from the context when krima is used. But strictly speaking, krima means simply judgment. When the Greek prefix kata, which means against, is added in front of crema, katakrema. The word katakrema is always clearly to be understood as condemnation. It's not clear in the wording of the text here from whom the judgment comes, whether it's from God or the ruling authorities. Well, you'll have to make the call on that one yourself. Paul extends his comments on civil disobedience by pointing out that disobedience goes for paying taxes as well, seen in verses 6 and 7. There are three different Greek words used in these verses to fully project the believer's obligations regarding taxes. 
In the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I have a discussion on three different Greek words that are used for taxes and customs there and dues, and you may look at that technical discussion if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org. It would appear that Paul's goal in these verses is to be as comprehensive in describing the believer's obligations to the government as possible. In other words, he didn't want to provide an excuse for Christians to resist the government short of that government simply making laws that blatantly conflict with our Christian walk. Now, in that context, we have several examples in Scripture, and here are about four of them. Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, it says, And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down in Daniel chapter 3, even though it was the law. Daniel resisted the law in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And then finally, Peter declined the Sanhedrin mandate that he stopped preaching in Acts chapter 4. Despite this refusal to comply, Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the following, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And finally, on this subject, Paul wrote to Timothy these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I quote, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So as believers, our spiritual mandate is quite clear. Pray for our leaders and understand that God allows them to be where they are. Give them their due. At the same time, follow the lead of Daniel, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when it comes to laws that infringe upon our relationship with God. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13, let's treat people as we would like to be treated. That's the lesson. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now let's not get extreme here. Verse 8 is not to put a stop to borrowing. It's an admonition to pay your debts in a timely fashion, as agreed upon. These verses encourage a positive Christian testimony. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42 says, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So you can see that the very acts of borrowing and lending were not condemned by Jesus. Paul emphasizes that Christian conduct governed by love for his neighbor is our standard. He makes reference to the summary Jesus gave to the law in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Both Paul and Jesus emphasize that the second half, the last five of the Ten Commandments, which outline man's relationship to man, well, those are embodied in one rule of thumb. And here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 9, Paul names these five commandments and emphasizes that they deal with neighbors' relationships with neighbors. If you'd like to know more about the usage, the proper usage by Christians of the Ten Commandments and the outline of the Ten Commandments, then look at my article entitled, well, The Ten Commandments, under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. 
So in other words, verse 10 makes the point that brotherly love embodies the last five commandments of the Mosaic law. In verses 11 through 14 of chapter 13, Paul talks about putting down the flesh. Verse 11, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Paul concludes this chapter with a pep talk about priorities in light of the urgency of the hour. His terminology references the appearance of Jesus Christ, meaning the rapture in this passage, as saved people, let's live like saved people. Put away the old ways and follow after righteousness. Verse 4 is accomplished as we are led by the Holy Spirit. When we read our Bibles, pray, fellowship with other Christians, and share our faith with others in some aspect of ministry, the Holy Spirit's power is strengthened in our lives, giving us the ability to overcome the tendencies of our flesh. Look at my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled How to Develop Good Spiritual Health for more insight there in that area. Paul speaks in this verse of not even making provision for the flesh. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. That verse says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report— if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. When you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, your thought life will be godly. When your thought life is godly, your actions will follow. The Holy Spirit-led believer steers clear of those actions which would compromise his testimony. Now let's talk about legalism. What is legalism? That brings us to chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks." For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now Paul gets into the discussion of what many today refer to as legalism. This word is terribly misused in today's society among Christians, 
Often, legalism is used to describe a set of values any Christian observes that's more structured than those of the name-caller. And that's not legalism. Now, let me tell you what a legalist is. A legalist is actually someone who has a set of specific extra-scriptural values that he imposes on others as a universal standard for pleasing God. Now, James 4.17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James is talking to believers in this verse, and he gives the definition of sin for the believer. A legalist is not content with the confines of this verse. He would broaden it to include his own standard list of sinful items as an addendum. Such is the case with the illustrations Paul gives in these first 12 verses of Romans chapter 14. Before we look specifically at the verses themselves, a little context might be helpful here. This discussion continues on into chapter 15, where it transitions into the peaceful coexistence of Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ. That would lead us to believe that the issues of legalism mentioned in this chapter might have been along those lines— those who were raised as Jews and those who were not raised as Jews or Gentiles. The anchor for this discussion is in verse 1. It says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So who is this weak in the faith person that Paul's referencing here? While the Greek verb for weak used here is astheneo, often speaks of physical ailments, here context tells us that we're looking at spiritual weakness. Moreover, this verse is used as a Greek present active participle, and that's indicative of a continual practice of exercising weakness in the faith. If you'd like further insight into Paul's terminology of being weak in the faith, then let's observe his reference in Romans chapter 4, verse 19. That's where he speaks of Abraham's strong stand on God's promises and identifies Abraham as being not weak in faith. Paul uses this term weak to describe immature believers repeatedly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Specifically, a weak believer is one who does not rely on the internal leadership of the Holy Spirit for his decisions, but he's more comfortable having his conduct legislated by other people. Not only so, whether they would admit it or not, those who legislate godliness are categorized by Paul in this passage and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as weak, weak brethren as well. In this verse, Paul says that these believers should be received into fellowship, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In other words, disputes over opinions. Well, let's face it. A legalist can wear you out with his list of artificial standards. He often has a way of making everyone around him feel inferior if that person doesn't comply. Ironically, these weak-in-the-faith people often display themselves as strong believers, when in fact the opposite is the case. The first issue of legalism that Paul cites here is that of a vegetarian diet, for which, by the way, there is no scriptural precedent. The one who observes the vegetarian diet exercises his own personal Christian liberty until he begins to use his practice as a test for spirituality in others. Then he has become a legalist. In other words, he's become weak in the faith. However, for those who prefer a vegetarian diet for themselves, but they don't seek to use it as a test of spirituality in others, well, they're not guilty of legalism. So here's another common problem. When the meat eater becomes critical of the vegetarian's choice of diet, even though the vegetarian doesn't make it a test of spirituality in others, 
Then the meat-eater is trampling on the vegetarian's Christian liberty. So, you see, we have both extremes in our world. Vegetarianism is a choice. If you try to insist others practice it as a test of spirituality, then, well, you're a legalist. If you accuse every vegetarian of legalism, even though they don't impose it on other people, well, you're, well, well, you're just shallow, shallow in your understanding of the Christian life because you have your own set of unscriptural issues. Paul then deals in the same context in verse 5 with special days of observance. Probably the Sabbath day is in view here. There was likely a minority of Jewish believers in the church located in Rome who, it appears, still observed the Sabbath day at sundown Friday to nightfall on Saturday, and they did it as a matter of Christian practice. Naturally, well, in Rome, you would have had people on both sides of the fence. The Gentile believers, having never observed such, probably proclaimed, you don't have to do that anymore. Many of the Jewish believers probably proclaimed, you can't be a good Christian without observing the Sabbath. However, since the issue probably contended along Jewish-Gentile lines, Perhaps some of the new Greek-Roman converts observed a few of their own special days as well. Paul indicates that it's a matter of Christian liberty. Whether you choose to observe special holidays or not is simply not a test of spirituality. Paul then emphasizes the importance of these kinds of disputes in verse 6. He says, can't we just all get along? In other words, Paul says in verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. So we see, the way I live my life has an impact on others. People are watching me. Christ told us we would be lights to the world in Matthew chapter 5. My life is all of Christ that many will ever see. That's why it's extremely important that I conduct my life in such a way that others will respect the God that I serve. In verses 8 through 12, Paul explains that this level of judging among believers doesn't glorify God. God will do the judging, a point he makes in verse 10 when he says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some Bible teachers refer to the judgment seat of Christ in this verse as the Bema seat instead. The actual Greek word for judgment seat here in this verse is Bema, and it's defined as being a raised platform mounted by steps and usually furnished with a seat used by officials in addressing an assembly, often on judicial matters. Now, Bema is only used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of those occur within this scenario. Only here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, does Bema actually refer to the judgment seat by Christ of believers. In other words, Paul fully intends to describe this judgment seat of believers as a future event patterned after a court appearance, like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. It's on this basis that verse 12 is written, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, just as an extra bonus to this, the word bema means judgment seat. So if you see bema seat, as some people, some Bible teachers like to write it out, bema seat, you're actually then saying bema seat seat, and bema is all that's necessary. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, in verse 11. That verse says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Isaiah, in his passage that's quoted here, is writing about the worldwide compliance that will be expressed toward the Messiah during the millennium. 
And then we have an admonition in verses 13 to 23 of chapter 14 to not injure the faith of another. Verse 13, Therefore let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, so you hear some people say, if you don't like the way I live, then tough. I've heard that from a number of very immature Christians over the years of my ministry. They abuse the concept of Christian liberty. When you choose to ignore the negative impact of a permissive lifestyle for yourself, aren't you also in violation of James 4.17, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin? Perhaps the key words to that question are choose to ignore. Please understand what verse 14 is saying. And I quote, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It's very immature of me to flaunt my rights in front of a legalist. The legalist lacks clear scriptural understanding, and he's referred to in verse 1 as him that is weak in the flesh. However, the mature believer with perspective on scriptural godliness, well, he'll practice restraint in his Christian life so as not to be offensive to that legalist. Those believers who disregard the feelings of the legalist are just as short-sighted in their Christian walk as the legalists themselves. Yeah, yeah, I know. You have rights. Of course you have rights. But that's why Paul wrote verse 17 where he even included drinking alcoholic beverage when he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When you care enough about your testimony, you'll limit your conduct. Paul writes on this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says in chapter 10 verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now, when you can say that with the Apostle Paul, then you have a mature perspective of Christian living. Finally, Paul sums up the argument in verses 21 through 23. You see, it's a matter of surrendering your rights for the glory of God. A while back, I spent a few days in a forum with some missionaries who went back into the jungles of Africa and South America leaving everything of value behind, they did so to minister to previously unreached tribes for Christ. They built their huts among the tribal folks, learned their language by listening and living among them. Over a period of 20 or 30 years, they were able to reach them for the first time ever with the gospel. When I see that willingness to sacrifice one's life for Christ, 
How can I possibly consider it too much for God to ask for me to limit my Christian liberty a little bit so as to not cause others to stumble? Verse 21 says it's not acceptable to make weaker brothers stumble. Verses 22 and 23 elaborate, going on so far as to say that when one doubts his impact on the weak brothers, then he should restrain his conduct. Not doing so becomes a violation of James 4.17. That thought continues into chapter 15. So in chapter 15, we have a final word on the weak brothers. Verse 1, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So Paul finishes up the discussion that he started in chapter 14 on the weaker brethren. He finishes up here in chapter 15. You'll notice that Paul uses the word strong for the first time in this discussion, having clearly established that people who abide by external lists as mandates, those are the weak people in chapter 14. Then here we find that those who understand that real godliness is based upon spirit-led principles well, they're referred to as strong in this passage. In these verses, Paul places the burden upon Christians with spiritual understanding, being the strong, to set an example before the weak believers so they won't stumble. Well, that's not fair, you might cry out. Well, here's the deal. They need maturity in the Scriptures, but you have no ability to help them with that if you're offensive to them. Then the example of Christ in verse 3, He gave His life for the spiritually needy. How much are you willing to give? Paul quotes here from Psalm 69.9 when he says this, As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As Paul uses this messianic psalm of David to reference Christ, he then fortifies this example of Christ's submission in verse 4 by saying, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. In other words, could one's consideration his lifestyle for the weaker brethren be greater than the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross? This Old Testament reference serves for our learning. We are therefore, verses 6 and 7, to modify our lifestyle accordingly and not struggle with the weaker brethren. In chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, we see that the Old Testament prophets had an eye on the Gentiles. Verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So what's all this sudden talk of Gentiles in this passage? It would appear that perhaps the contention that we saw in Romans 14 and 15 was along Jewish-Gentile lines. Now Paul seeks to legitimize the presence of Gentiles among Jewish believers. In verses 9-12, through 12, Paul uses the Old Testament to demonstrate that it was always intended that the gospel should be spread to the Gentiles. He quotes Psalm 1849, then he quotes Deuteronomy 32-43, and then Psalm 117-1, and then Isaiah 11.10, all of those passages showing that Gentiles would join the Jews for salvation. So Paul invokes the writings of Moses, David, and Isaiah to make his point. The Gentiles are a legitimate target of the gospel. So you might ask, how do these verses relate to the weaker brother? That discussion of the preceding verses. Well, it's simple. The born-again Jews had a tough time turning loose of their legalistic lifestyles, while newly saved Gentiles had no such baggage as they came into their new life with Christ. The admonition here is for both categories of Christians to coexist together without agitating one another. There's a word that needs differentiation here in verse 13. That word is hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis. Unlike our English word, which expresses some doubt, that word hope, the Greek word for hope literally means confident expectation. The connotation of the word expresses no doubt whatsoever. Our God is a God of confident expectation. As such, believers should abound in confident expectation by the indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 through 22, Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles, verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Finally, Paul explains that his ministry is to the unreached Gentiles. In verse 20 he says, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. In other words, he set his sights on taking the gospel to new people. And that's why we have the gospel today. It's because Paul went to the Gentiles. Paul justifies this taking of the gospel to the Gentiles at the expense of time with the Jews when he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. He does that in verse 21. He indicates that this ministry to the Gentiles has delayed his appearance to them in Rome. He says that in verse 22. In chapter 15, verses 23 through 33, Paul plans his itinerary. Verse 23. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, 
Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed that they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Here we see Paul talking about going to Rome and Spain, but to Jerusalem first. Well, if Paul made it to Spain, we don't know about it. However, we do know that he made it to Jerusalem. That trip didn't turn out so well as we see in Acts chapter 21. That's where Paul was arrested. Then, of course, from Acts 21 to 28, we know that he made it to Rome with some Roman soldier assistance. Incidentally, we see that Paul was apparently carrying some funds for the Jerusalem church provided by the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice what he says in that regard in verse 27 when he says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. That brings us to the last chapter of the book of Romans. And we're going to say hello to some folks. Verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Cincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epenetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia, to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord, and Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophina and Trophosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So we see there that Paul sends some greetings to Romans that he knows. And I've included some identification that, as best we can, shown by the Easton's Bible Dictionary who these people are. And you can look at those in the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Now, Ryrie has a note regarding verse 16, that holy kiss thing. 
Paul's term in Romans 16:16. 16, 16. It was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own sex. We don't know very much about that. Then he talks about avoiding division in verses 17 to 23 of chapter 16. Verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Quartus, a brother. Verses 17 and 18 make it clear that the New Testament local church thrives on unity. It does not thrive on division. Paul's doctrine was one of love. Division is contrary to love. Now listen, avoid people who cause division. Too many times local churches think it's improper to eliminate those who are divisive. But here we see that Paul insists that it should be done. While all division is injurious to the local assembly, Paul speaks specifically of doctrinal division here. In 2 John, we see his treatment of those who promote doctrinal error. Read the notes on that passage for a differentiation of what kind of doctrinal error should be adamantly rejected. Verse 20 can be understood in two different ways when Paul says this. He says, "...and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly." The Greek verb for crush there is centribo, which implies crushing or breaking. So, is Paul referring to the breaking of the hold the false teachers of verses 17 and 18 have, that the hold should be broken as represented metaphorically at the crushing or bruising of Satan? Well, perhaps so, but he may also be referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ of the rapture and subsequent second coming. It's impossible to know for certain which of the two possibilities is intended to be understood here. In verse 21, we know who Timothy is, Paul's ministry companion. Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater are identified as kinsmen or relatives. Tertius is Paul's stenographer for this letter to the Romans. Paul's host in Corinth, Gaius, is mentioned in verse 23, along with Erastus and Quartus, about whom not much is known. And then finally, in verses 24 through 27, the time has come to say goodbye. Verse 24, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The last four verses fully describe the ministry of Paul. He gave us the gospel that had been hidden in ages past, but now was made manifest through the work God has appointed to him. Paul's writings tie together the mysteries of the ages with regard to the Messiah. So what exactly is that revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began about which Paul is speaking here? Well, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3.16 the following. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, 
preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Well, it's not a mystery anymore. Through Paul, verse 26, it has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.